Hello, folks, and welcome back. I'm Simon Ward, your host for the High Performance Human Podcast. Each week, I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier, and, of course, improving your triathlon performance. Before I introduce this week's guest, I'd like to say thank you so much to Andrea Gellan, whose generous donation has covered the cost of this week's podcast. Andrea, this episode is dedicated to you. In the four years since the podcast launched, we've managed to do so without adverts, and I'd like to continue in this manner, but the costs of producing the weekly podcast are growing annually. If you're interested in making a one-off or a regular donation to the podcast to help cover these costs, then in return, I will dedicate the episode to you and we can avoid the thorny issue of advertising. You can find a link in the show notes below or you can email beth at thetriathloncoach.com for further details. Now, on to this week's guest and I'm really, really excited to be joined by the other half of our favourite Yorkshire duo, Olympic bronze, silver and now gold medalist Johnny Brownlee. In the four years that we've been publishing this podcast, this is the first time I've managed to sit down with Johnny and have a chat. So we've got a lot to catch up on, starting with that gold medal performance in Tokyo and going right back to the days in the early 2000s when Johnny joined the North of England talent squad that Jack Maitland and I coached. It's a great conversation. We have a few laughs. So let's crack on with this week's episode. Welcome, finally, Johnny. Finally, (laughs) after 220 plus episodes to the High Performance Human podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, You were finally here. It's a pleasure. And I've come round to your house, so we're doing it in person. So you're the first first podcast I've done in person. so since the whole COVID thing kicked up. And coincidentally, I think Alistair might have been the last one I did in 2019. <laughs> so that's a nice little sort of closing of the circle. So, uh, yeah, we've got a lot to catch up on, haven't we? All the way back to uh, 15 years, I think it is. Uh, yeah, well, you've been kind of there since, uh, I guess, the start of my, my competitive triathlon care to now. So, yeah, a lot to catch up on, uh, a lot of stories and... Uh, I guess changes, to the way, even the way that sports changed over that period have been amazing. Yeah, well, let's... For those people who don't know of you yet, because I know pretty much the whole world knows who the Brownlee brothers are, um, but let's get to know you a bit more. So I've got a few quiz questions here. Go I'm for not it. trying to catch you out, but um, <laughs> so we'll start with something easy. Are you a Coke or a Pepsi man? Uh, I'm a Coke man. Me too. What about pizza or burger? Burger. Yeah. Tea or coffee? Oh, definitely tea. I'm sat here the Yorkshire tea, so definitely yeah, tea. me too. I'm a coffee man, but it's only right to drink a Yorkshire tea <laughs> in your house. Obviously, Leeds would be the one you'd choose here, but you've raced a lot of places in the last 10 or 15 years. What's your favourite place outside of Leeds to race? So, I kind of two answers to this. My favourite place to race as a consistent venue was Madrid, because Alistair and myself were actually the only people ever to win the World Series in Madrid between us both. So, that's quite nice. I love the course. But favourite venue, I loved um, a one-off race, London 2012. It doesn't get any better than that. Oh, from the morning, then the crowd, the result, uh, seeing school teachers in the crowd. Oh, yeah, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, I was there on the side of the Serpentine with half a million other people and most of Yorkshire. I know, incredible, just to look back at that. And I don't think I really took that in as much as I should have done. Mm. Um, I'm sure we'll come on to that later. But uh, the whole day, the whole build-up, the pressure, the you know, even from coming down on the train, 
to London from Leeds. Um, the, the girls race the day before, uh, well, so a few days before, not, not going as well as we kind of wanted to, to more, like more pressure on us. Oh, to, yeah, not being able to hear each other on the bike because of the crowd, but yeah, we could talk about that all day. Does it, does it make you feel emotional chatting about it? Uh, yeah, yeah, it does. I very much moved on from that event very quickly because I wanted to become world champion, so I didn't have much time to think about it. But it does uh, make you feel emotional. I think one thing, it was my first Olympics and I have t- realised how you shouldn't take these things for granted, how, mm. you know, what achievement that was. Alistair in particular, to go from the injury, the pressure, and to, th- to deliver on that day, you know, it was almost like we did it and then moved on and didn't really think, you know, to cope with that pressure. And... Yeah, the build-up beforehand of I was in my kind of heyday of that was actually my thirty-third podium on the row. It was was London. Um, people expected us to to win medals. The penalty I coped with that. Um, even little things like the morning before turning on the TV, having a Yorkshire tea, and turn on BBC News, and they were doing the BBC News from Hyde Park talking about us already. You know, I would never really had that before. And in Hyde Park, there was a. 15 meter picture of us because um, we're sponsored by BT and at the time and we were on the side of this uh, this building and you know just to have that kind of build up being at home everywhere I went I couldn't cross the road without someone saying good luck or I couldn't go to a, a, a cafe without someone buying me a lunch which is absolutely brilliant as a tight Yorkshireman but um, just that pressure was amazing and to deal with that I'm really really proud and mm. I kind of wish I'd taken it in a little bit more yeah yeah Hindsight's a great thing, though, isn't it? You know, um, and I think we've all had moments like that in our life when it, we've the days gone by so quickly, and we've wished we could just sort of pause it for a little bit. Yeah, and I don't think I really realised that until literally these last kind of twelve months. I don't know if that was a pandemic or getting older and not know it, and kind of realising it doesn't last forever. I've really tried to take it in a lot more. You've had quite a. a I mean, you've had a decent career, haven't you? <laughs> you know, um, but oh, if you yeah. if, if you weren't a triathlete. I think there'll be people listening going, a decent career. So I'm in a decent career. You've had a great career and it's not over yet. But if you hadn't been a triathlete, what do you think you'd have been doing now? That's a really good question. Um, and it's one of those things that's really hard to answer because you've committed so much of your life to it. But um, I, my parents are both teachers. So Alistair's an easier one. He would have, teachers, does doctors. Uh, um, parents are both doctors. So uh, Alistair's an easy one. He would have gone into that. But I actually think I would have gone into teaching. Um, I had some great teachers at school that one of the reasons why I got involved in sport and stayed in sport was because of those teachers. Uh, they taught me unbelievable life lessons, you know, the simple ones such as if you work hard, you can achieve things. And in, in, in school work, if you just worked hard, it actually made your life a lot simpler because um, you, know, you did well in your exams, you didn't get, get put in attention, you just cracked <laughs> on with life and it was easy. Um, so. Uh, and I learned massively for those guys, and I think I would have liked to give them back. So maybe, maybe teaching in some way. Yeah, you're a, you're a sports fan as well, aren't you? You're a massive sports fan. I know that you love Leeds Rhinos and Leeds United. Um, but apart from swimming and biking and running, what what what's your favourite sporting activity to participate in? Oh, to participate in? Oh well, I, football. I can't play football anymore, but. Uh, my friends you can't actually, play because of your career or because you keep getting injured? Oh, because of my career. I'm always worried. I actually, we, was it six or seven years ago? Less than five years ago, we started a, um, a six-size team um, up at Horsworth, up at the uh, pitches there. And I went with my friends and 
I agreed to be manager because I they didn't let me play. You know, some of the guys that I, ra I ran with and I trained with were, were playing, and I was like, I'll be manager. And then I couldn't help it. You know, I happened to have my kit on. I'm like, oh, I'll play this week. And they hated me playing because they really worried about me getting injured. So it just wrecked it for them. Um, and I, someone actually broke their leg one day, and I was like, I can't play anymore. Um, so. Yeah, uh, I, will, uh, I would love to play football. When I retire, I'll definitely join a six-side league and play a bit of football again. Mm. All right, let's move on to some general stuff now. What's your favourite film of all time? <laughs> uh, definitely uh, Braveheart. I absolutely love Braveheart, uh, even though it's a very anti-English film. Um, I love the kind of... The wars, the fighting, the history. I was a, I was a history student at Leeds Uni, so um, mm -hmm. it's got a bit of that, even though the history in Braveheart is very inaccurate. Um, but yeah, that's my favourite film. And what about film stars? I, I was trying to work out when you were growing up who might have been the uh, the female sort of pin-ups, and I came up with three. Penelope Cruz, Scarlett Johansson and Reese Witherspoon were the ones that came to mind. Um, who, would you, who would you choose out of those if... You, if uh, my generation was um, Penelope Cruz, definitely. But uh, uh, it, the, the other kind of pinup one was in um, Mask of Zorro. Who was the is it Catherine Zeta Jones? I'm liking that. Oh, yeah, might have been. Um, yeah. So that might yeah. be another one who was around my time. But yeah, um, Penelope Cruz out of them, definitely. <laughs> and what about your favourite sports player? Oh, that's a really. I used to, <laughs> I used to obviously uh, love Lance Armstrong growing up, but that kind of changed a few years ago. Um, and being a massive Leeds United fan on my wall upstairs uh, I got an Alan Smith shirt so um, obviously I grew up with the Champions League days in for Leeds United and Alan Smith was a homegrown hero who then um, well moved to Man United but I still absolutely loved him I remember working with Leeds United Academy probably just start, mm. probably just before the time we started working with uh, the, the Triathlon Academy and Alan Smith was in that um, group then and he was the nicest young man of all of them he'd always come and say thank you oh really I really enjoyed that yeah and he lived he lived in a sort of development like this on the south side of Leeds and um, I met some I don't know how I think one of my friends lived nearby and they said you know you wouldn't know he was a footballer he's always really pleasant he's, there's none of this sort of paparazzi stuff or having parties or driving flash cars oh, he, he was mm, uh, good well he always came across like that and it's actually one of, the, one of the reasons I really like Leeds United at the moment is how well, one, I've met a few of them and they all seem really, really genuinely nice people. And secondly, I like how they've um, prioritised uh, fitness and how they've shown that being a fit footballer actually really helps. Mm. Yeah, well, back to the days of, uh, you know, nobody's going to beat us for effort and enthusiasm. No, definitely. And that's what they've shown. Well, hopefully it works this season. Not going great. But... Well, also, they've got this like, sort of like a shit or bust type thing if you know like Ferguson used to say you can score three we'll score four yeah and I think uh, no matter who you are and uh, when you go around the country people you tell them from Leeds and people go oh, dirty Leeds <laughs> don't they they've got this reputation which goes back to the Don mm. River era which is when I when I used to watch mm. them um, but actually I think they've surprised a few people in the last year haven't they y yeah they have yeah I think um, the, I like the idea if we've got our style, of our style of play, we're going to stick to it, whatever, whether we're 5-0 down or 5-0 up. And I quite like that confidence and it does work and sometimes it doesn't. Um, get through this year and I think they'll build again and um, they could in five or six years be in Europe or they could in a couple of years be down a couple of leagues. So uh, hopefully it's a, the first one. What about music then? 
Are you a rapper, a rocker, or a popper? <laughs> I am the least musical person in the world. I, uh, Alistair would laugh at me at this. I, I played the piano at school because my mum and dad believed in giving us equal opportunities. And um, I, <laughs> embarrassed to say, I never practiced. I just couldn't, you could play me a bit of music now and I wouldn't remember, be able to remember it two minutes later. I recognize it. So I used to, for my piano lessons, not practice because I want to be outside playing football and running. And then I used to borrow my mum's medical kit and bandage my fingers up and uh, pretend I'd broken them. So I'd go to my music teacher and go, oh, sorry, I can't play today. Um, hopefully she's not listening. Um, and then um, it would get me out of practice. And my music teacher must have thought I was either a really clumsy kid or someone was beating me up at home because I used to have all sorts of uh, neck braces on or bandaged <laughs> fingers. And so... Uh, just just to get out of music lessons. Just get out of music lessons. Um, I like to think that you've only got so much uh, determination in life and so much you can commit to. And I used a lot of mine, well, all mine up on either school or uh, sport. So I uh, didn't have enough for music. <laughs> so do you not listen to any music then? No, never, no. I listen to well, podcasts when I'm out running um, oh. quite often now. Um, but no music. I listen just to... Radio, football talk on the on the when I'm in the car, or just podcast when I'm running. So no favourite motivation tune to get you going in the morning. No, the only one I uh, I really recognise, I get it comes to memories, is um, um, Emily Sunday, the London 2012 song, the one that was with everything. Mainly because I was probably at every single dinner after London 2012, and it got talked, it came up on every single video, and that just reminds me of London. So I can't really remember that one. I don't ask me to sing it. Um, what was the, what was it called? Uh, um, Emily Sander. I don't know what the I can't remember, but it's a London 2012 tune, and it's a soundtrack to everything, everything, and it just. Oh, it's not that. What have you done today to make yeah. yourself? Oh, is it? Yeah, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. right. Well, we'll put a link to that there, on the, there we on go. the show notes today. I think that reminds me of London. So uh, it's just a, again, it's, it's not really music; it's the memories. Well, you talked about being a history student. Do you read a lot of books then? Um, I do and don't. The problem with me is I get very addicted to a book and I get it and I can't put it down and then I have a little bit of a break for a couple of weeks and then do the same again. Um, so I like to read more. I did a lot of, during my history degree, it was basically four years of non-stop reading and it put me off for a while, but I came back. But no, I, I, I read all um, um, the um, historical fiction books, you know, the um, other Berlin girl or that kind of I like, I like the Tudors, so any kind of historical fiction around that. So if you were going to wreck, because we've been building a PDF document from all of the guests we've had over the last four years of, um, of recommended books, things that have motivated them, things that have really enjoyed. And I'd like to ask you if, if you were <laughs> going to recommend a book to our listeners, what would it be? Well, it's not very motivational, but um, I like the series. I've got the, uh, in. I, well, the first one I really like is that Viking series. Um, uh, the, well, last, the one that the, was on uh, TV, The yep. Last Kingdom. Yes. I really like all the books about that. I literally can't put them down. It's got Ragnar and I forgot. Bjorn. Yeah, I've got the main character on my head. I can't remember. Oh, um, he's from Bedenberg. Um I can't remember his name, but the Viking, Last, Last Kingdom one. Um, okay. And I really like them. But as far as motivational one goes, uh, I'm more podcast. Um, obviously, your podcast. Uh, <laughs> of and course. I, I really like um, the Jake Humphreys podcast as well. Oh, he's called, um, uh, he's also called High Performance. High Performance. I was going to say, that's confusing me, High Performance. Yeah. Um, and I actually really enjoy that. Um, they have some good guests on it and um, across business and sport. And it's a good way of getting you through a, a run. 
Yeah, as long as he doesn't call it the high performance human, otherwise I'll have to I'll have to sort of like send him a cease and desist letter because I've actually got the trademark on that name. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, Utrecht. Utrecht is the Viking. Utrecht. Oh, that well. So that's Last yeah. Kingdom, isn't it? So, yeah. so there's the Vikings, which starts off with the Ragnar Ragnarsson thing yeah. about him going and finding new lands to rape and pillage. And then you've got the Last Kingdom. The Last Kingdom, which is from the Saxons' point of view yeah. of having to defend against That's right, the yeah. Vikings, isn't it? But yeah. we were watching them pretty much at the same time. And uh, the Vikings is a bit too gory for me. There's a bit of a there's a bit of a crossover, isn't mm. there? Because um, Bjorn and a couple of the brothers uh, and the last big battles with the Vikings that the Saxons had down in um, down around the Thames in mm. that area are sort of featuring similar characters, yeah. aren't they? You know, well, the, the, the Vikings are a bit too gory, a bit too many naughty scenes in there. So uh, I prefer the Last Kingdom. Well, hopefully, people have got a bit more of an idea of you now, Judge, yeah. That you're not just uh, you're not just talented at swimming, biking, and running. Um, so let, let's talk about let's start at the end and then work backwards. So 2012, uh, sorry, 2012, 2020. I'm, I get confused because it was in 2021, wasn't it? But they still call it the 2020 Olympics. So you finally won that gold medal. So what, what was it like to finally do it? I think it was, for me, it was definitely a massive um, feeling of, of contentment. I feel like I had capped up my Olympic career amazingly. I'd done more than I ever wanted to achieve. I would have thought if I hadn't been gold medalist, I would be missing something. If I couldn't call myself uh, Olympic champion, even little stuff, it sounds weird that I never used to want to touch Alistair's gold medal um, before uh, Tokyo, because I believed that if I touched it, I wouldn't win one myself. Um, we had a few awkward moments at you know functions where someone hand you it and be like no 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 I can't touch it um, <laughs> drops on the floor yeah yeah <laughs> and even stuff like that it kind of feels like I could do that now so that's nice and uh, that kind of contentment it was obviously a bit of a weird one because of the whole well firstly the whole Tokyo experience was strange and secondly being a relay you had that moment of I've done my bit I knew my leg was absolutely brilliant um, I couldn't have done any more and there's that moment where you sit and wait and you go well, I, I'd have to sit and wait to see if I become an Olympic champion. And it wasn't really until... Well, I, I knew when Alex got on the last leg on the, on the run that we had pretty good chance, but then it wasn't until he's going down the finishing straight and then you got that 20 seconds to really take it in and be, wow, we're going to be Olympic champions. Matt, as Alex Ferguson would have said, bit of a squeaky bum moment when he started getting caught on the bike, but I guess um, you'd put your money on him on the run. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I knew, well, Vince was not the Vince in best form as well. Um you know, he had uh, had his calf injury and I knew he'd wasted a lot of energy trying to catch Alex up. So he, on the way he came around to run, Alex was, was, was going to beat him. So I was pretty confident as long as there's no crashes or punches, it was going to be our Olympic medal. So there was that kind of period of I can't do anything about it, but I'm pretty sure we're going to be Olympic champions. Does it bother you that it was a relay and not an individual medal? Um, uh, yes and no. I call myself an Olympic champion is, is amazing. That's all, all I wanted. But if I, um, if I put it this way, if I wanted to, again, achieve absolutely everything in my Olympic career, I'd still want to become an individual Olympic medalist, mm. gold medalist. Do you think that's still possible? If you'd asked me before Tokyo, I'd have said, no, absolutely not. It's going to be my last Olympics, firstly, and I'm not quite sure I'd got it in me either. Uh, you know, my build-ups between the Olympics were completely different. London, I was um, on the podium streak, like I said, 33 races in a row on the podium. Rio, I uh, was in great form beforehand. Uh, the course suited us. Um, Gomez had crashed his bike. So I was like, okay, this is going to be great as well. 
Tokyo was on my start line going, I'm gen I'm, I, I'm, I want to call myself a, a medal contender and I believe I can be, but I'm definitely not a, anywhere close to being a cert for a medalist. Uh, but then after the individual, I felt great, but feel like I got more to offer. Uh, but after after the relay, it I felt unbelievable and thought if I could do that in the relay, you know, the fastest run, the fastest overall leg, then there's no reason why I can't do that in the Olympic distance in Paris. Yeah, and it's uh, well, it's only two two and a bit years now, isn't it? Really to Paris, um, but it's still you've been through a few Olympic cycles, and to go through the highs and lows, and to then start building yourself up again for another one, uh, it's Quite demanding, isn't it? And stressful. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, but in many ways, I think I think London was a perfect first one in that it was the hardest one it could ever be. A home Olympics, Alice's Achilles injury in early in the year, the pressure that went behind all that um, because of the home Olympics meant that after that, every Olympics has seemed a lot easier. Um, you know, Tokyo compared to that kind of the build-up kind of went unnoticed. It kind of came across. And I kept trying to remind yourself Olympics was happening in two or three weeks' time because there wasn't that kind of build-up. Um, so, um, and I don't know, again, if we're getting older, it gets a bit easier. And um, the fact that, you know, in London, I hadn't won any Olympic medals, so you're on a start line going, you know, in the Olympic standards, I'm nothing. You know, I, I, unless I get a medal here, I might never win a medal. Whereas now to go to one in Paris, knowing I've already got three Olympic medals, anything else as a bonus is also a strong position to be in. Mm. You've been to three Olympics now. Obviously, Tokyo was strange. Did did it, you know, because you have this, you still have the whole aura around the Olympics and you, your medal, so your gold medal, still your gold medal, and you still had that fantastic race, but no crowds, none of that. Oh, obviously, comparing London to Tokyo is like chalk and cheese because there was like the whole world was in uh, Hyde Park and the whole world wasn't, was at home. Did it feel strange sort of competing and trying to get yourself up to compete at, at the highest level and um, give it your all? when actually it would have just felt like a training race? Um, well, for, getting up to race wasn't hard because it's something you aim for and it's still the Olympics and I could race in front of, uh, you know, Chevin Chase, I still want to do well. Um, more spectators there. Yeah, a lot more spectators there. I want to do well. But um, in Tokyo, getting up for the race wasn't a problem. It was just the weird feeling around it. Like I said, it kind of, I had to remind myself it was, it was, it was in a couple of weeks' time. It just... Um, even the you know the, the days before it, we're in a hotel in we didn't we didn't even go to the Olympic Village um, uh, because we stayed in a hotel on the course, so we had none of that Olympic feeling, um, and it just felt, it felt like there wasn't Olympics happening. Um, and you're like, no, no, it, it is, there is Olympics, it is Olympics. Um, you were there very much just to race. All the other stuff around the Olympics was taken away. Um, you know, the stuff after you had to fly home forty eight hours after the race. Um, the closing ceremony, opening ceremony, sorry, was well, barely existent for us. Um, there was none of that people asking beforehand, going, you know, good luck at the Olympics, you know, how are you feeling? Everyone kind of almost forgot about it until it really happened. So there wasn't that build up. Um, there were some positives to that. Uh, you didn't have to organise tickets for friends and things like that. <laughs> you know, there was none of that. You could very much just focus on the race, but it did just feel like a race, a normal race. But when you actually came to the Olympic day, you still know it's Olympics. Um, and there's actually some good sides to that. You know, it's very it's easy getting to the course on the race venue itself. It was really easy because no one else was there, so um, um, it, it felt like an easy race to go to and practically an easy race. But it was, it did just feel like a race. You you're very much there to do a do a job. You're there to try and win medals and go home. Do, do you, I mean, having done three, and obviously the contrast between London and Tokyo, we've talked about. Do you feel 
sad at all for people like Jess, for instance. Jess may not get a chance to go to Paris. She might do, but it, that was her first. And yet it was the Tokyo experience she had, not the London experience. Yeah, I think it's a lot harder for people who it is their first um, because they haven't... I've experienced the other side of the Olympics and I've experienced a home Olympics in London where um, you could... You had that crowd, you had the build-up, you had all the amazing stuff afterwards. You know, the Rio experience where we went to the closing ceremony, flew home on the plane with everyone else. Um, and um, for these guys, if it is your one and only Olympics, you, you are Olympian, you call yourself Olympian, which is amazing, and, and they definitely deserve that. But you haven't experienced the true Olympics. You've only experienced the race bit, the triathlon bit, which is very similar to a normal triathlon. You know, it's the same officials, the same athletes you're racing, um, and it's you know, very similar course to what I've raced on before. Um, but you've not experienced any of the other side of the Olympics, you know, the Olympic Village, the Olympic Food Hall and staying there for a bit, meeting other athletes from Team GB and other athletes from around the world. Um, and then you're, you're going home, watching other events, you've not experienced that. So I think it's a massive shame. Mm. You've now got the full set. <laughs> So you do have one up on Alistair because he's just got he's just got goals, hasn't he? Uh, well, he, yeah. One of the things he texted me afterwards, Alistair and Alistair, was you know, well done. I told you the best second af- second leg athlete in the world, um, but my two goals count for more than your three. <laughs> well, gold three points for a gold, two for a silver, one for a bronze. You've got six each. Yeah, we're equal then. Equal. Yeah. yeah. No, it's nice, and I'm going to call myself the most um, successful Olympian um, for as long as I can before um, someone else trumps me. Kath Bishop, who was an Olympian, silver medalist uh, in the rowing, um, has written a book called The Long Win. And in there, she she makes this point that um, whilst we see the smiling, happy gold medalists achieving everything they've worked for for you know, mm. 15, 20 years, maybe, um, they, that's not necessarily the happiest moment of their life. And that sometimes the, the medalists, I think, I can't remember whether she said it was a silver or bronze medalist who are happiest because they've sort of maybe it's the bronze because you've you've actually to finish one place back was fourth and no medal, yeah. But you've not got the pressure. Silver was like well you just managed to get this but you didn't quite get the gold. Um, so you've got the benefit of having all three now. So in terms of, I know you said you felt content at getting the gold, but in terms of actual happiness, um, which one would you say has left you feeling the most happy? Well, after the race as well. As far as Olympic medals go, um, London, definitely, no doubt about it, because of the build-up and because of uh, in Hyde Park with so many unbelievably memories of the people in there. And I love the stories behind it, of uh, people climbing trees and to watch the event, um, people doing reckeys two, two weeks before to make sure they have the, the best spot and the best... Uh, little cut through to get make sure from the train station to get there on time to picking out school teachers voices in the crowd so the whole day around it um was um london but i've actually had been happier in you know, races you don't expect before as in that happiness of the performance you know uh, one big one for me was in 2019 in edmonton i'd had a really terrible few years beforehand um i'd gone from being a podium in pretty much every race i did to couldn't buy myself a podium if I tried to win in, in Edmonton in, in 2019. And that feeling across the, finish, across the finish line was one of the best ever. Same in Sardinia when I raced in um, 2021. So it was um, probably two months before the Olympics. And we were in Sardinia, just, you know, it was a World Cup race, but 
Uh, it didn't seem the most important race at the time, but I had trained really hard over the winter, had then raced really badly in Yokohama and was like, I've got no chance to win an Olympic medal here. You know, I'm miles away. What's wrong with me? So then um, racing in Sardinia, I'm feeling brilliant and going, I can do this. And that feeling across the finish line of knowing that I can do this and know I can do this now was one of the happiest I've ever been in a race. So it's actually some of those little races where I'm actually happier. There'll be a lot of triathletes listening to this that say, you know, they go to races knowing that they've got had great training and then they, uh, just as you described there, just don't perform and think, well, why am I doing this? What's the point? What's what's happened with all that training? And then the next race, they're awesome. I mean, you've been racing now for, you know, 15 years at the highest level. Have you been able to put your finger on what it is that makes a difference from one day to the next when seemingly the fitness is the same? Uh, no, I think if you can answer that question well, you're probably uh, one of the best coaches in the world or best at understanding people. It could be anything. And I think that one of the things I've learned, to, uh, probably the best bit of advice, is um, look into it a little bit, uh, what the problems are, but don't spend too long dwelling on it because you probably will never find out what that problem is. And you'll just you'll convince yourself it is something. So uh, don't worry about it too much and quickly get back on the horse and race again. And sometimes you need someone to tell you to do that. And that's what I did in Sardinia. You know, racing Yokohama was awful. Came back and like, no, I'm going to go to that race. And people encouraged me to do it. I went to it, went to it, raced really well. And I, there's no difference in my form between the two. Uh, if anything, I should have lost a bit of fitness because I'd been a long haul flight back from Japan. Um, but yeah, just don't overthink about it. Overthink it. If you've done the training, it will show at some point. I bet Malcolm would have an answer. Yeah, Malcolm would. Uh, yeah, Malcolm the white, the wise owl. Uh, yeah, I sat down w- with Malcolm for a, a coffee before I flew to Tokyo because I thought it was a great thing to do and hear his wisdom for a bit. So, uh, yeah, Malcolm was brilliant. What Malcolm was really good at is when you um, really got holding you back and he knew that when you're on form, he could um, say something and then you're like, right, the work's done now, I can rest. And he was really good at that. You were good then because you knew you were in good form and because he, he told you so and just the, the time was then to re- rest. You talked about how Tokyo was pushed back a year because of the COVID pandemic. Talk us through um, how the COVID pandemic impacted you. Obviously, races were stopped, um, but your sponsors are still standing by you. So I suppose you've you, not got any worries financially, but still, you love to swim, bike and run. You've been doing that since you were a little boy and that was suddenly stopped, wasn't it? So what you get up in the morning, normally go into the pool and uh, what do you do with your time? Yeah, well, so if I start a story of my COVID pandemic, really, um, sounds pretty stupid looking back on it now, but um, we were trying to go to the first race of the year um, in Abu Dhabi in well, end of February, early March time. So off you went there, and uh, just as we got on the plane, the tour of UAE uh, was cancelled. As we got off the plane, our race was cancelled in, in Abu Dhabi, so we're like, okay, that's not great, but this is only going to last a couple of weeks. Um, and I was trying to prepare for Olympics, so we actually looked at the, we were looking at then at flying to Australia and doing a few races, and then we decided not to. We came back home. Again, we only thought it was going to last a few weeks, so flew to America to go to the altitude training um, base, thinking, right, we're going to just get as fit as we can, race the Olympics, and that's, if that's the only race that happens this year, uh, then so be it, we'll be ready for it. Went to America, um, there for about 10 days, pools, every single pool in the area was getting closed one by one. We found a pool that was open, just because I think it was in the middle of New Mexico and they hadn't heard of COVID yet, I don't think. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the British government, well, the the Olympics got postponed and the British government said that all travellers had to come home, basically. So that's it, straight back home, booked a flight in about half an hour's time uh, for the next day, but very quickly, car hire back from Heathrow. 
came back home um, and then we're back in this lockdown scenario like everyone else and pools were closed and um, initially I thought I'd take a week or so to get my head around it and um, uh, just relax and come back and kind of chill. Um, my girlfriend uh, um, was a physio, or well, still is a physio, but was working on the COVID ward in Harrogate actually. So at the same time as I was coming home, she was going to Harrogate to see COVID patients and was doing everything from clearing away the bodies to you know feeding the food to the people. So it was pretty tough because I felt really hard, sorry for her. Um, then I actually really struggled uh, initially because I'm someone who loves the routine and I've from the age of um i don't know 12 13 i've known exactly what i'm doing most days mm -hmm. and my even for the last 10 years i've been swimming at uh, every morning for monday to friday to set me up and get my day going just not having that was weird so i very quickly came up with a new routine involving stretch cords and you know or some days cycling first and running first but i just needed that routine and um i i did that and i, I actually in, enjoyed some relaxed training enjoyed being at home for a while um um, and then, so um, I, I, I enjoyed that consistency and I actually think it really helped me the year because I could do a year of, of kind of consistent training, pressure-free training. Most of us were told that we we're only allowed to exercise once a day. <laughs> Did you get special leeway uh, being a professional triathlete or and, do you think that there's, so you know, anybody in authority around Yorkshire would have known yeah. who you were and gone, oh, you're one of them Brownlee brothers, <laughs> carry on? No, 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 no there was no um, special... Um, whatever regulations or dispensation initially it was very much i spent a lot of time i've got a treadmill and a turbo downstairs so i spent a lot of time on them and a very between going out and going in going in um so i just yeah made it work um we got dispensations for traveling later on or when pools opened but that time no it was um i kind of spit up my riding i do some very very long rides uh, occasionally um when I, when I, and then next day i just do a short ride in the turbo one thing i actually I learned from from the from the pandemic training, which I think is really interesting. I've taken forward now is I kind of went back to basics for a lot of things. In that, you know, we get caught up with um, wanting to run on the best tracks or the canal because it's a great service can run fast and wanting to make sure that everything's recorded and you do a session that's better than last week. And um, and I get caught up in that, but I, I, because you weren't allowed to travel to to train. I wasn't allowed to use those facilities and the, the, you know, the tracks were closed anyway. So I'd go to the local forest, come up with a kilometre loop that involved, you know, potholes, tight corners, GPS watch was going in and out of signal and just ran. And I actually got really fit off it. I just learned that you definitely can overcomplicate these things and worry about this too much. And as long as you've got a good, a good body, a good bit of motivation, you can get fit by just training your local forest. And I, you know, that, that taught me a lot. Very early on in the pandemic, um, I think it was Joe Skipper had been on a big ride around Norfolk, hadn't he, and posted it on <laughs> on, uh, on Twitter and on Strava, and he, he, you know, it was a mixture of people going, "Yeah, big up, well done, Joe," to getting absolutely hammered, saying you're a professional triathlete, you're being irresponsible here, you're not setting a good example. Did you feel like you needed to prov to set an example? Uh, yeah, um, I obviously uh, wanted to example is it in that I did everything I possibly could. Um, it's just for selfish reasons and set example that I didn't want to end up in hostel from a bike crash or things like that. So, mm. you know, there's choices I made of making sure I didn't go too far afield, making sure that I rode a bike carefully because I didn't want to put any more pressure on the health service or um, I, 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 I 
didn't do a lot of mountain biking in case I crashed or anything like that. Mm. And those times when you're like, should I fly around that hill, that corner? No, I'll back it off here. So things like that. Um, apart from that, um, I just genuinely tried to avoid people that time because it was about avoiding people. Um, I helped a few of the, 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 the elderly neighbours with um, uh, shopping and that kind of thing because yeah, at that point they were staying inside. Um, but very much I, was, I, buckled, I buckled down, stayed, did what I could, did what I needed to do and support my girlfriend as well because she was going through a tough time. Yeah, that must have been, uh, that probably made it more poignant um, not wanting to end up in hospital because you'd be getting first-hand reports from her coming home saying, actually, you don't want to be in here, Johnny, even if you sprained your ankle. Oh, definitely not. And, and you know, that's from a selfish point of view as well because they weren't operating on things that weren't essential for a while and rightly so. So I didn't want to be the person who came with a broken collarbone and be like, oh, fix me. Um, so, yeah, I definitely tried to uh, be safe as possibly could. I, I know a few people who came off their bikes and ended up in hospital and it was rather embarrassing for them. Um, <laughs> I bet. Yeah. All right, well, we've uh, we've been through that. Um, you referred to that time when you, like in London 2012, the 33rd podium <laughs> in a row. I can't remember how many it was, but it was like four years where you didn't finish. Was it off the podium or outside uh, of the top four? Uh, uh, off the podium. So uh, it ended up being about, again, about 44, 45. So that was not just ITU races. That was the Olympics, World Championships, WTS races. French Grand Prix. But, but also the French Grand Prix, mm. which are like harem, scarem <laughs> races, aren't they? And, you know, anybody who saw what happened in the four years following mm. that, where you just nothing seemed to go right. And, I mean... For those people who aren't familiar with it, French Grand Prix race is a sprint or a super sprint. So you've got everybody coming out of the walk pretty close together, jumping on the bikes pretty close together, and then coming to try and like a Formula One race, trying to get to that first corner. Just one touch of the wheel and you've been down. Oh. And for four years, you managed to avoid all of that. You must have thought that you'd got some sort of um, guardian angel on your shoulder. Uh, yeah, no, I know. And I, looking back, I didn't realise how... I know you make your, look, your own luck to some extent, but I didn't also realise how much luck I had avoiding those kind of things. But the next few years, I definitely uh, then had a lot of bad luck of yeah, crashes in Hamburg to crashes in, in, in Yokohama uh, just outside Tokyo. I, that one annoyed more than anything on in Yokohama. I, it was a rainy day. I'd stayed at the front of the course, the front of the bike pack the whole way around the race. And then um, I was about fourth wheel and a guy crashed in front of me. I had nowhere to go. And then I remember seeing all the athletes just sat at the back, just ride past me while I was on the fence going... I was in the right position the whole way around this race, but that really annoyed me. Um, but I actually think a lot, and I've only just learned this now, that a lot of the uh, kind of, you know, I had a few health issues in that period as well. I had a few races where, especially the 2017 year, where my body felt like I'd get to a point and it just stopped working. And I'd cross the finish line not even that tired. Um, and I have looking back now, a lot of the work I've done recently, um, um, with some people that I brought in the team and a lot of testing I've done, I didn't realise how much Cosmel really affected me. And mm -hmm. I genuinely believe it's taken until now to really get over that. Right. Um, I didn't give that enough credit. I went and did some testing afterwards in Portsmouth with the, with the British Army, with the British Navy. Um, um, and it turns out, they said at that point, there's no like, obvious long-lasting damage. But I don't know what it was, but that Cosmel really knocked me for three or four years. And not just racing the heat, but just racing in general. In general, And um, it's only now I've really got over that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Cosmel. Um, do you get more fan mail because of that now <laughs> than you do for, for all your other um, uh, achievements? Um, I actually think uh, it will be the thing that I will be remembered for. 
And I don't know if I'm happy with that or not. Um, that you accept that's the way it goes, and um, you know it, it will be the a lot more people, the kind of general sports fans or just general uh, people out there will say, um, "Oh, were you the one who got carried, or you the one who did the carrying, or they won't, won't ask, or won't know me as the Olympic medalist? It's the one from Cosmel." Mm -hmm. So there definitely will be that, and I always will be that. You know, I remember. Uh, going through um, America Airport on the way back, and, and an American Airport on the way back, and just seeing it on TV. And I remember um, uh, when we got home, uh, getting invited on the James Corden show or um, these American chat shows, which is unheard of for a triathlete. So um, yeah, I think it will always be something that I get recognised for, but it's not a bad thing. I think it's always been good. For, it'd be good for the sport. Mm. Yeah. Well. Maybe you can maybe you can poke some fun at it later on. Yeah, I'll definitely. I, I, I uh, yeah, I, it is what it is, isn't it? It's um, yeah. It's not my proudest moment because well, one, I can't remember it, and technically I didn't do anything. Alistair did it all. <laughs> um, but it's a funny old world we live in. You need to get a copy of that little wobble he had in London before 2012. Do you remember? Because uh, he probably can't remember that bit either. Well, I like. I don't like talking about that because I ran straight past him and didn't help him out. So uh, I, uh, when people bring it up, I always keep my head down. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, let's let's zoom a bit further back then. So 2000 was it 2006? Would that have been? No, it would have been a bit earlier than that, wouldn't it? You'd have been 14 when you joined the Talent ID programme, so probably 2004. Just yeah, 2004. Athens, Athens Olympics year. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I can still remember it now. And um, I, so I was very, very, very sporty growing up and obviously swimming, got dragged to a lot of swimming clubs with, with Alistair. And then I kind of went through these periods at 12, 13 where I didn't... Um, uh, do as much sport and I started to kind of lose my way a little bit I wanted to play again lots of distractions play football at lunchtime and then I decided one day um, um, after having a bad cross country race actually um, I um, one of my school friends uh, uh, nearly beat me in one of the cross country races and I thought right I can't be having this anymore I used to be the best runner at school so it was, it was in Manchester and my dad I remember driving home with my dad and said right I want to start cycling school with Alistair he, um, we, we called in a, a sports shop, bought me a, a bag to cycle to school with and off for a start cycle, right, I'm committed. And then after kind of six, seven months or so, I got on the, the what was it called, talent ID? What was it called back well, in the you, day? You, you, it was, you started to, I think you came along with uh, yeah. Alistair a couple of times, didn't you? Yeah. You weren't old enough to weren't old enough to get on. But then I, I, and then I got on, I got, um, on it and it was at, one of the, the, well, there's many advantages to being on it, you know, the, the learnings you got from it, the weekends away. Um, but one of the big things is you felt that you were part of something and it gave you that kind of feeling of, I am good because people have put their trust in me and think that I'm good. And I think that was actually the most important for me. You know, um, the weekends away, I absolutely loved. So as the kind of the northern squad we were, weren't we back in the day, or it was, yeah, or the Yorkshire, yeah. we used to go away, trips away to... Um, um, Ingleton and go caving and um, smash up some hills or um, do these amazing things, amazing long rides. And we used to train for these weekends because you're riding against people like Phil Graves, you want to be able to drop them. So they actually became more important than the races. And uh, I liked it because it really taught me, I think, well, Jack and yourself were both there and it taught us, you know, these weren't the most, uh, you didn't, we didn't stay in posh hotels, we stayed in bunk beds. We, um, uh, would would have great times, but you know we didn't go to posh swimming pools or posh gyms. It was all about getting out there and 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 uh, riding, riding a lot in the dales, winning a lot in the dales. 
I'm trying to remember some of them. Uh, probably about February or March time, we used to go to Ingleton, didn't we? It was yeah. a bunkhouse, and we used to buy you a load of food on the Friday night when you got there. And um, but Mrs. Rafferty used to undermine that by bringing a whole uh, catering tray of lasagnas for you all, didn't she? I, for, yeah, um, I remember um, that. And there always used to be a local pub, and we're like, oh, come on, let's go to the pub for like fish and chips. Yeah, but no, we had to cook uh, cook all the food and. Um, Jack had bought his uh, his vegetarian uh, uh, stuff, beans, so we had to eat that as well. We we used to go in the little uh, at the bunkhouse there. There was a little, there was a tiny little cabin next to it, like a little cottage that, that with three or four bunk beds that the coaches would go in, and we'd come in in the morning and outline who was responsible for cleaning up and making the beds yeah. and doing the washing. Um, what else did we do? So we went there a couple of times, didn't we? And uh, Chips took us all in. Mm. All of us. We all yeah. went. Oh, and you had to do it. You had we to squeeze all, through the uh, the cheese press. Mm. Yeah. And then uh, we, we did one where we. Um, I remember once we went in the cycle track in like Preston or something. We went once. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We went to the velodrome in Manchester a few times. I, I think that might be before me. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember that one, but they're just yeah great trips away. Um, it, like we used to train for those trips away, but more importantly, it was great to be part of something, and then you. Uh, Got a great weekend of training, enjoyed being outside and enjoyed. Mm. Um, uh, I remember once riding, I think it must have been the Ingleton one, and we stopped at the cafe in Hawes. And you we were like, You shouldn't be stopping now, you've got to go in the loop. And went to do another loop and came back to the cafe in Hawes. <laughs> we, we did, I think we did one up there also when Graham Moore came with us. Do you remember? And we went up um, from Dent. Uh, oh, yeah, the other yeah. way up the coach road. So yeah. you went over towards Garsdale Head, and Graham <laughs> was determined to keep up with us. Yeah. But I think. Uh, I think we had to wait for him at the top, oh, didn't yeah, we? I and, uh, all that. There was a little bit of chuckling. <laughs> well, we would like to think that we did it. We were just strong northern guy, just cracked on with it. And I remember Phil Graves walking up a hill. He's never lived it down since on his bike. Mm. Um, and Jack used to try and do get us to do a bit of yoga on an evening, but we were all very tired. So, oh, the Howarth. We used to go to Howarth as well. There was a one on Howarth above the moors there, um, where we used to ride around the Howarth uh, hills and the cold and the rain, and then run up in the. Uh, run up towards uh, Wuthering Heights, the Bonte sisters wrote about. Well, you'll be familiar with all of that anyway, won't you, from the uh, old Lang Syne that you do every year? Yeah, every year, yeah. So I love doing that on New Year's Eve, uh, old Lang Syne. So it's just a great I don't know, six, seven mile fell race. And um, I've done it in all, all conditions where it's been too snowy to do the route. It's been people have come back with the, the, the hair frozen solid because it's so cold and the shoelaces are so frozen solid they can't take the shoes off to being uh, knee deep in mud. I remember just, I think it was, must have been 2015, Simon Whitfield was staying with Alistair, oh. wasn't he? Um, but he was there all wrapped up and we went to watch and I think you ran around with Holmesy and he pushed you up the last hill, didn't he? Yeah, that's Ian right. Holmes. But Malcolm was stood at the finish line in trepidation because it was quite, they had to alter the route that day because it was really icy. I think that was uh, 20, the, so it would have been what, eight months before 2016. Yeah. So and we, Ma all Malcolm was just worried about was counting you all back in safely with no injuries. I remember that. So that, that year it was icy and snowy, so the route got changed. And the problem with racing these local fell race, uh, local legends like Holmesy, was they knew the routes. So I quickly learned when you were in the running that even if you run faster than them, they just beat you to the next point because they just know the shortcuts. And so I just gave up and followed Holmesy and then we had a little sprint at the end. But uh, now I, I, that's one of the reasons why I, start, why I really got into sport was those fell runs and loving it. And instead of going into the sport to win or to you know, even think about being professional, it was just something I did and something I loved doing. So, um because I've been skiing uh, a few times with Ian and Andy Peace yeah. and um, Rob Jeb's brother, 
So they're all from that fell running community. They're all Bingley runners. They're all Bingley runners, which you and Alistair mm. are. So anybody who's seen pictures of Johnny and Alistair when they were sort of 9, 10, 11, mm. 12 in the blue and white hooped vest, that's, that's Bingley Harriers, probably the most, one of the most famous fell running clubs in, in the yeah. country. It's a totally different culture, isn't it, fell running to triathlon? You know, they, they, you talked about the pleasure of running, no gadgets, stopping afterwards and having a pint. Often they'll, they'll ride their cross bikes over to an event and yeah. then ride back. Or go to the pub, get some chocolate. Go to the, the pub, yeah. yeah. Com- that's completely different to, to triathlon. Uh, yeah, it is, yeah. And I love getting brought up in that environment of fell running of, well, there's just two, well, two kind of events. I really like the old on New Year's Eve, but I also like the bunny runs. So on a Tuesday evening um, during the summer, I used to go to this old quarry above kind of Bingley and um, uh, on your start, on your go. And part of the course, you'd be scrambling up this hill um, that you couldn't run up. You had to use your, your, your hands and your and everything to pull yourself up it. Finished, um, you know, everyone says well done, shakes hands, go to the pub for some soup and a roll and a drink for the older athletes and then the prizes used to be chocolate. Um, you know, not money, nothing, just enjoyment of doing it and you go home with a couple of Easter eggs. Um, yeah, and that's why I, I love the sport because I love that uh, kind of club atmosphere. I love the, the running and, the, and, and the, the racing, but it was about being out there and having a good time and everyone clapped in uh, the, the first runner and the last runner equally and uh it's absolutely brilliant and uh it's one thing i want to do one thing i've actually uh one of the, one of the hardest things i've found about being a professional athlete is it stops you doing a lot of these events because you're so restricted you know you can't do a fair race what happens if you get sore legs and you miss the tuesday run session or you injure yourself and you can't race for the next few months so when i retire from from triathlon racing i'll definitely go back to do more of that and uh, just just do what races i've missed out on don't fancy any gravel riding uh, I'd love to do some gravel. Alistair's done a, a bit of it recently and I would mm. love to do it. It's become a new thing. I'd really like to do a gravel triathlon uh, um, at some point. And we have looked at kind of organising one in Yorkshire, a gravel triathlon. But um, yeah, we, we did, I, just, I, know I did a lot of that during lockdown because um, it, just to mix it up. And I didn't realise how much good gravel riding there is around Yorkshire. Yeah, I spoke with Alistair for the podcast um, recently and we were talking about that and talking about gravel riding in Yorkshire it's not really like gravel riding is it it's more like mountain biking on a on a cross bike it's a, you know the, the the tracks are in the main pretty rough and you need some pretty good bike handling skills and a robust bike yeah it's not gravel riding like you see in America where they're basically like roads uh yeah, you come back tired arms. I quite often find that gravel ride around here the next morning I can't swim very well mm. because my arms are so tired. Yeah, I've, I've found the same. We were up doing a race called Glorious Gravel and it was a typical a sort of autumn Yorkshire day. It was towering with rain and wind and we were up at Cam High Road and uh, yeah, that descent down the Roman Road. Once you've gone over the lovely mm. tarmac bit, which gives you uh, a lovely feeling of, oh, this is this it then? <laughs> I mean, and yeah. then all of a sudden you hit the... Gr- gravel and then it's yeah it's um it is rough i, I hear what you're saying about feeling battered the next yeah. day yeah back to triathlon racing you stepped up i mean you've been talking about it for a while <laughs> so you finally stepped up to a 70.3 recently in portugal nice place to race it probably wasn't on your mind at the time <laughs> that it was such a nice place um tell us about that experience and how that sort of shaped your thinking for what's coming ahead Yes, yeah, so um, I've always wanted to give a 70.3 a, a, a go. Um, I did Daytona, but again, not really uh, properly. So after uh, the Olympics, I wanted to give it a go. Obviously, I did a month of Super League racing, then had a three weeks of preparation. 
And uh, I, I absolutely loved the race. I swim, coming from Super League and ITU, swim was, was, was fine. The bike, first 10K on the flat, then up a hill, again, I was absolutely fine with that. Uh, down the hill, absolutely fine. I could handle my time trial bike all right. Lost a little bit of time to uh, Ditlev and Casper Storms on the, first, on the flat bit of the bike. I still need to work on that kind of flat, putting the power down on the, on the flat on my time trial bike. Um, and then, but I knew if I was within 90 seconds or so, I could run my way to the front. I knew everyone kept telling me, don't set off too fast. Nailed my nutrition, got it all perfect. Started running, um, right, the kilometers were ticking by. I was catching the front. I was saying to myself, right, relax the first 10K. It was two laps, so relax the first lap, and then I'll pick it up. And then at the first 10K, I felt brilliant. Literally, I was actually fine. I was like, right, I'll start to build at about 10K. Then I got to 10K, I thought I'll start building at 11K. And got to 11K, I'll start going a bit faster at 12K. Um, and then gradually the K's got a bit harder and harder. I was like, ah, oh, okay. And by the time I got to 16K, I started cursing the fact it was 21.1K and not 21K. <laughs> uh, that, I was at 100 meters just decided for I wouldn't be able to manage it. Um, and then all of a sudden the K started going a lot slower and I really struggled. And um, I was a bit disappointed with that. I uh, thought I was, I'd held on better than that. And, um, but if I'm on it, well, at first I really enjoyed it. And I think I can be good at distance, but I just didn't give myself enough preparation time after Super League, you know, after racing um, the Olympics and preparing for that and kind of tapering, recovering, a bit of a holiday after that. And then after a month of Super League racing where you don't do a lot of long training, you're recovering, you're flying around the world. Um, I just hadn't done enough of those long sessions and basically my quads and my legs just gave up. It wasn't nutrition, it wasn't fitness. It's just my quads and my legs gave up and uh, I'm sure a lot of people experienced that. There's absolutely nothing that could have done. You know, someone could have said, I'll give you a million pounds to run a, a free, a lone three minute kilometre and I and couldn't have done it. Well, I think there'd be a lot of people listening <laughs> going, oh, thank goodness, it's not just me. Um, do, you think it's, do you think it's a long bike miles or do you think it's a long run miles? I think it's um, definitely time, more time than time trial bike. So my quads don't give up. And, but I, all, I think the main thing for me is just the longer bike to run sessions. You know, the longest I've done was actually a bit of testing I did um, on, um, in the lab. And it was basically an hour and a half kind of race effort bike into 30 minute run. And, and that was it. I really need to start to get up to a couple of hours on the bike into half an hour run at race pace um, into half an hour of just running home just to get that, that longevity of... Three, three hours of exercise and then uh, I hadn't done that at three hours of exercise at a relatively hard intensity um, I didn't say my body just gave up um, after I got to about three hours and three and a half hours and just thought I can't that's way, that's enough for me um, I just wasn't used to that and yeah I, I probably hadn't done a four hour ride for three months beforehand because of Olympics and Super League race I didn't really realise that afterwards so just more long sessions yeah, that short stuff, you get very fit, but that's not what you need. It's not because you're not operating at the top end, are you? It's about, um, in fact, it's probably not the fastest athlete that wins the race. It's the one who slows down the least. And, and you know, Definitely. the others were probably slowing down as well, but you were just slowing down a bit more than them. Oh, I learned that. And, you know, in Super League, I was probably running it down to 240, 245k pace, maybe slowest 250k pace in the whole race. Uh, there, you know, if you run a free 10k pace, 310 first K, that might cost you the race because then you blow up. So, you know, I, I needed just to hone in that kind of 320 kilometer pace and just be efficient at that, be able to do that all day. And I just couldn't do that. Most triathletes, and I wonder, I do wonder whether professional triathletes are the same. They start off 
thing in you know shorter distances obviously you had the olympic thing to do and then think but one day i'll i'll do an ironman and then they think about kona i know alistair sort of been thinking about that have, have you ever sort of looked forward to the idea of doing a full and and uh, if you did how do you feel about it now after your first long distance experience um years ago i liked the idea of it but i think a few things have put me off uh, firstly watching up watching alistair do kona staying up late you know, starting a day, day of training, finishing it, then still watching Alistair and he's still going, put me off it completely. <laughs> uh, and then secondly, um, my 70.3 experience definitely didn't make me want to do it more yet. Um, I want to nail the 70.3 first and get that right, but I, I could not imagine doing that twice and at 70.3. And I also, you know, the day before the race in Portugal, the, um, the Ironman race was going on and just watching... The pe- it's unbelievable watching people, uh, the, the achievement of people, it, the dedication, the determination is incredible. Of you know, it's it's dark already, and people are starting the marathon. Uh, it's just it's a long way in Ironman, and uh, I think I'll give it a few years. At some point, I'll do one, but uh, not for a while. I uh, it just seems like a long, long way. It, another thing that's a long, long way is retirement. I mean, I don't want to push you, you know, fast forward your life to the point where you're sort of hanging up your running shoes and your bike helmet. But like with training for the Olympics, you know, the foundations need to be laid a long way out, don't they? So uh, does it ever cross your mind what you'll do when you're no longer racing professionally? Um, This is a question that I used to hate a few years ago, but now I actually uh, get into that stage where I start thinking about it. And there's a couple of things. Um, The Brownie Foundation is obviously a, a big one. And some that we're very passionate about. We set set up in 2013 and basically we put on, at the moment, kids, um, primary school kids triathlons around the country. And we had about 30,000 kids in the triathlon for the first time. And next year we want to have 10 events. So 10,000 kids at least doing a triathlon. Um, Kids from all different schools come, it's completely free. Um, They do a triathlon, they realize that they can achieve something they didn't believe they can achieve. And many kids don't even know what a triathlon is, never mind think they can complete it. And they absolutely love it. And these days are amazing. And um, at the moment, I can't go to, we can't go to the many as we like because we're obviously training. I'd like to do that more in the future and grow it. Um, so that's what we want to do. Um, um, Brownie Fitness as well is something that we've started. So it, it's basically a coaching uh, company. We organise camps abroad um, and there's, well, personal coaching or more kind of general coaching as well. And it's something that uh, we, we, we're launching now. Uh, our training partner, um, Mark Buckingham, or Bucko, um, is uh, running it um, now and he's, he's, he's a head coach. But so in the future, again, I'd like to get more involved with and because um, I really like helping people. I really like, uh, I've learned a lot in my career. You know, I learned a lot. I've learned a lot more during the lows than I have the highs of, of a triathlon and people and how to perform and how to you know deal with all that and i'd like to kind of pass it on mm. i remember the two brownie triathlons that we did oh yeah Harewood house and was it fountains abbey yeah uh, yeah well you must got a sore voice from, from them I talking did. yeah yeah uh, they were brilliant they were they were great races and um i remember just seeing you know how happy it made you and alistair see all those young kids taking part in the race um you you were in relay teams weren't you so you'd have <laughs> Uh, somebody would win a prize to come and be part of your relay team. I mean, I can't imagine how that made them feel. There was probably equal amounts of pressure, wondering if yeah, if they were going to be able to live up to it and uh, to the task. And but also relation at being paired with you guys, and uh, yeah, it's 
the pandemic has sort of got in the way of all that, hasn't it? And obviously with the foundation, that's a charity. So for, like most charities, there's not been any opportunities to raise money. So it's it's put pressure on everybody. Yeah, it has definitely. So the Brain Foundation, we initially, well, we, we still, uh, a lot of the money, well, a lot of the money is raised through fundraising events and things. And that was initially basically how we'd, we'd done it. Uh, and sponsors as well. I've seen them. We've got some amazing sponsors. Um, but uh, it's been hard for us to keep that going because without you can't organise dinners anymore. You can't organise bowling events like you used to do or auctions. So, um, uh, yeah, we've, uh, and it always needs support because basically every single penny that's raised goes back to helping a kid and um, do a triathlon. So uh, we're still looking at ways to keep that going. Didn't Alistair give some of his prize money from Hell Valley last year to the Brownlee Foundation? I think he gave half back to PTO, didn't he? And then he put half into the foundation. Yeah, he did, yeah. Because uh, obviously Hell Valley was one of the only races that was on last year. And yeah, half uh, to PTO and half to the foundation. So uh, yeah, it's very kind of it. Well, listen, Johnny, I really appreciate um, you inviting me around. I really appreciate you finally being on the podcast. Hopefully it's not quite as long before you, we get you back again. I'm sure all of the listeners will be grateful that we're going to see you on the circuit again next year. Um, I know you're moving up to a longer distance, but I guess as long as Leeds WTS is here, you'll be making an appearance there because I know that um, brings out the crowds. Certainly when it's around Leeds City Centre, everybody loves to see you and Alistair racing, don't they? And uh, I know that you two love sort of being on your home turf, seeing all your mates. Yeah, well, I, the plan at the moment is to aim for Paris. Um, as long as I can be on the start line and be competitive, um, I will definitely give it a good go. And uh, the next time on the podcast, hopefully we can talk about how I've uh, nailed and learned how to do a 20.3. Johnny Brownlee, thanks for being on the show. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Cheers, thank you. Thank you to Johnny for joining me on this week's show. There's links to everything we discussed in today's episode in the show notes below. Now, before you go, I'd really like to take this opportunity to say how much I appreciate you joining me each week on the High Performance Human podcast. If you haven't yet joined the conversation, please subscribe for free on iTunes so you never miss an episode and continue discussing issues that arise from the podcast on our High Performance Human podcast Facebook page, which is free to join. Okay, that's all for this week. I'll be back in seven days' time with another great guest. Until then, please remember that being a high-performance human is a journey. So stay healthy, stay focused, and just keep trying to be a little bit better than yesterday.